0: KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we continue our reflections into Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. We will be in chapter 5 this evening, and I don't know if we are going to get out of verse (laughs) 1. It's just one of those evenings when I went back into chapter 5, and I was reading through these verses, and at the same time going back to some of the commentaries that I've talked about so much. I really did come to discover uh, quickly that chapter 5 is loaded, and if we are going to grasp the significance of chapter 5, we first have to understand what's going on in this first verse. Uh, This first verse has us going deep. You know, sometimes I'm talking very practically about the faith. Other times, I'm talking in very specific theological terms by the grace of God, in the (laughs) either-or, you understand them. But in saying that, I will say this evening, we will be in biblical theology. I mean, we are going to be theologizing, if you will. And and what do we mean by theology? To just hit the refresh button here, Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas says, Theology is to study matters in relationship to God and how they apply to our life. It's St. Anselm who says, theology is faith-seeking understanding. Fides corns intellectum is the Latin, and so what does that mean? Well, <laughs> that in faith, we are all called in our baptismal vows to seek understanding, to contemplate the mysteries around us, and to just not project what we think something to be, but no, come to understand, come to discover what something is. Right you've heard me say before that we can say ought because there is first an is and that is is the person of Jesus Christ Jesus Christ is the way the truth and the life not a way a truth and a life but the way the truth the life this is what he says in John chapter 14 verse 6 so when we contemplate Christianity We contemplate what has been revealed to us, what we are made to discover. And so theology then is, in faith, seeking how to better understand what God has revealed. In the light of that, we theologize, right? We take the principles that have been given to us by Jesus Christ himself, and we seek to better understand divine revelation. Now, It always has a practical application, always has a practical application, but nonetheless, there are those principles we have to understand. There is a theology in play that we have to reflect with. And now, where someone might be more advanced than the next person, I do think, when it is all said and done, we all are called to have that foundation. And now, what am I talking about? Well, First of all, this call we have to understand the old in light of the new and the new in light of the old, right? We call that typology, the study of types. In Romans chapter 5 verse 14, Paul is talking about how Adam is a type of Christ and how ultimately Christ reverses the fortunes of Adam in the garden and restores us to proper health, okay? And all throughout the Old Testament, we have these types of Christ. Jesus says in John chapter 5 verse 39 that you search the scriptures because in them they bear witness to me. Well, if Jesus said that, we know there wasn't New Testament scripture, right? So Jesus is talking about the Old Testament, right? He's, he's talking about how we are called to search how Jesus Christ fulfills the prophetic thrust of the Old Testament. This is what he is doing on the road to Emmaus. He is teaching the disciples how he is a new Moses, okay? A new Moses. And I talk about this now because the opening verse of chapter 5 will have us in typology, okay? We can give it another context. I like to ask the question to folks, do you ever start a read in in chapter 47? No one raises their hand, right? Because everyone starts in chapter 1. Yet, if all we read is the New Testament, then it is like picking up a book in chapter 47. If there's 73 books in the Bible and 46 are in the old and 27 are are in the new, then ultimately the Gospel of Matthew is chapter 47, right? If we're going to understand chapter 47, we have to first understand the first 46 books. Incidentally, the first verse of the Gospel of Matthew beckons this because matthew says jesus christ who is the son of abraham and the son of david so right away matthew wants us unpacking who abraham is and who david is because what does matthew want us to do help us better understand how jesus christ is a new abraham and a new david so this evening we will be applying this principle of typology which in the greek is Typus, which is best translated as pattern or impression. Okay, so in the Old Testament, you have these impressions left by all of these great patriarchs and, and prophets alike that leave a pattern, if you will, that points to Christ. So once again, we will look closely at, the, at this pattern this evening. Now, if you can turn to Second Corinthians chapter 5, And I will only read verse 1. So this is verse 1. For we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. So the Ignatius commentary, who you've heard me quote from before, speaks to this tent and building this way these words that are used are a contrast between mortal bodies and resurrected bodies. If you were to go to Wisdom chapter 9, verse 15, we see how an earthly tent is synonymous with a perishable body. Beyond this, Paul has in mind the distinction between the Mosaic tabernacle, a flimsy and, and temporary sanctuary used during Israel's trek through the wilderness, and Solomon's temple, a building that became the permanent dwelling of God in Jerusalem. So this transition from tent to building in biblical history helps to illustrate how our mortal bodies will give way to immortal ones on the last day. What about this phrase, not made with hands? The scriptures often describe the works of God as what? but works made without hands. Implied in these words is a contrast with the works of what? Human hands. Okay, so one of the things we see being employed here by the sacred authors is this use of juxtaposition, comparing one thing in light of the other, and in the comparison, we can then better see the message, right? So this contrast as it relates to made without hands and and the work of human hands recurs several times in the Bible because there is no little difference between the two. So the product of men's hands, even if they serve a sacred and religious purpose, will always fall short of the perfection and glory of God. They will always be frail. They will always be imperfect and part of this world. The works of the Lord, however will always be perfect, will always be lasting, will always be pure. They are heavenly and spiritual and, as Paul highlights, will never pass away. Even so, God has arranged to teach us about the works of his own hands through the works of human hands. Isn't that interesting? Now, Scripture points us to several temporary and visible symbols of the old covenant that in many ways instruct us about the eternal and invisible blessings of the new. And what do we mean to say when we use that word new? Recall what I talked about last week, how when Jesus Christ uses the word new in new covenant, he is expressing a quality in the new covenant that is different from anything else that has gone before. A quality, we could say, of freshness. A quality of permanence. The same Greek adjective is used to describe our Lord's new commandment and his creation as a new heaven and a new earth, as we read it in the book of Revelation chapter 21 verse 1. So these are things that remain new that is the new covenant and everything that belongs to it, even thousands of years after they first appeared on the scene. So to talk about what is new in the new covenant, we talk about what has a freshness or what has a permanence. This is actually inherent in the Greek. You know, I asked the question yesterday, Joe, is it that important to understand the Greek or is it that important to understand the Hebrew or the Latin or the Aramaic? And so I ask you, how important is it to get underneath these verses so as to appreciate (laughs) what Jesus Christ actually said and what the sacred authors were actually communicating? On a level, my friends, the English language has a very difficult time translating the beauty and the flexing power of some of these antique languages. So what we are left with is the need to study what some of these words and or phrases mean so as to grab hold of what was actually being said. Now, in saying that, I am not saying that any English translation is not inspired. Of course not. But it does call us to roll up our sleeves. It does exhort us to roll up our sleeves so as to better understand what this text is all about. So as I shared with my good friends yesterday, yes, <laughs> it is very important to know these words. Now, we don't have to necessarily be fluent in Greek and Aramaic and Hebrew and Latin. I'm not saying that. But this is why we turn to commentaries and resources that we might come to understand again what these authors and Jesus Christ himself is saying. The faith comes to life when we see the divine purpose of each and every word in each and every verse. Only then can what the sacred authors are trying to tell us be illuminated for what it is. And for this, we praise God. So something as simple as new in New Covenant is very important, especially as we embark this evening on a study that will have us looking at the various news in the new testament just not new covenant but what is paul after and the new testament authors after when they talk about a new circumcision a new kingdom a new temple a new jerusalem okay well let's take those up a new circumcision circumcision was the sign of the covenant between abraham and god Now Paul says in Ephesians chapter 2 verse 11 that the circumcision of the flesh is a work of human hands. With one swipe of the flint knife, a young boy enters the divine covenant made with Abraham, right? This is what we read about in Genesis chapter 17 verses 9 to 14. According to the Torah, however, circumcision was not an end in itself, huh? It was an outward sign of what the people of Israel were supposed to do on the inside, which was what? Well, what does Deuteronomy chapter 10 verse 16 tell us? To cut away the stubbornness of their hearts. So because sin and weakness made this impossible, Moses promised that the Lord himself would reach down and do for the Israelites what they could not do for themselves. Essentially, Circumcise their hearts in Paul's mind this is precisely what happens in baptism which is the circumcision of Christ what is Colossians chapter 2 verse 11 made without hands there you have the phrase made without hands how about a new kingdom the prophet Daniel was once called upon to interpret the dreams of King Nebuchadnezzar right in one of his dreams the king saw a huge statue of a man made of various metals and clay the statue was impressive to the sight, but the king saw a small stone cut out by daniel 2 verse 34 by no human hand smash the statue into pieces and become a gigantic mountain that spread itself over the earth in this interpretation Daniel told the king that this stone was a new kingdom that God himself was about to establish that would pulverize the empires built by men and extend its dominion over the world. What Nebuchadnezzar had seen, in other words, was the new messianic kingdom of God. The new messianic kingdom of God. So, again, we have this biblical phrase made without hands, being applied to how we are to better understand what is new. How about a new temple? What was the temple? The temple in Jerusalem was that all-powerful sign of all things eternal. Now, according to the book of Hebrews, this Israelite sanctuary, this temple was a model of the heavenly temple, a replica of the true sanctuary, not made with hands that Jesus entered once and for all in his ascension. So on a different level now, Jesus linked the temple with the mystery of his humanity. Destroy this temple, he said. As John chapter 2 verse 19 reminds us, in three days I will raise it up. His enemies misunderstood these words, and of course at his trial accused him of threatening to demolish the temple. Made with hands only to build another one just like it though as mark chapter 14 verse 58 reads not made with hands In point of fact my friends jesus had not threatened to destroy the jerusalem sanctuary nor did he intend to build another one in its place rather he had promised to raise up the temple of his human body and the resurrection right this is a divine work, beyond the ability of mere human hands. This is what Jesus wanted us to see. So for Paul, the saints await the same hope of a resurrected body that is eternal. And well, what did we just read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 1? Not made with hands. You know, earlier I was talking about that Greek for new, how there was this uh, freshness and permanence. Well, could we not apply this to our own life? You have heard me reflect into the meaning of the kingdom of God before, how the kingdom can be broken up into three categories. First and foremost, the kingdom of God is about Jesus Christ himself. Jesus Christ incarnated the kingdom of God. Secondly, because he did, the kingdom of God can also be something that belongs to the interior life. Now, this is why we use the phrase, let Jesus Christ reign in your hearts, because Jesus Christ is king. And the third dimension is more of the regal function of the kingdom of God. Now, I speak to all of this because if we can speak to the kingdom of God in these terms, then how all the more can we apply the Greek word for new to us? How there is a certain freshness and permanence to who we are as new insofar as Christ abides within us. Isn't that a beautiful thought? And again, this is something that comes to us not only from Benedict Sixteenth, but also the church fathers. So here we have been reflecting upon these titles we read of in the new, a new circumcision, a new kingdom, a new temple. Well, how about this last one, a new Jerusalem. What was true of the ancient temple was true also of the city that encompassed it. It was an earthly sign of a heavenly reality. For centuries, the people of Israel looked to Jerusalem as the great city in all the earth where God had chosen to make his presence dwell. Yet, yet, my friends, even Jerusalem was an earthly city built of stones that were hewn and stacked by what? Human hands, huh? (laughs) Human hands. According to the book of Hebrews, the saints of the old covenant searched in their hearts for something greater and for something more lasting. They looked for a better city, a city that Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10 says, whose builder and maker is God. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 10. So, this city is the what? Heavenly Jerusalem, where angels and saints gather for worship in the eternal presence of God. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 22 to 23 are a beautiful set of verses because they really have us reflecting, contemplating, pondering the beautiful mystery that is the heavenly Jerusalem where angels and saints gather for worship in the eternal presence of of the Lord. This is what we are going to share in. I had someone ask me a few weeks back, Joe, is heaven just going to be about worship? I mean, isn't that kind of boring? Not that I don't mind worship, but just perpetual worship. That doesn't do much for me. (laughs) That doesn't do much for me. Well, let me ask you this our worship perfected in God's glory. Is that not going to bring us the greatest joy? And while we will be worshiping the one true God, what have I also said about worship? What has Paul said about worship? Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 3. Paul challenges us to understand that everything we do is called to be a holy and acceptable offering unto God, our spiritual what? Worship. Our spiritual worship. So while we will be spending eternity worshiping God, I have to imagine that that is going to also include other things than just how we might typically think about worship. Not at the exclusion of it, but certainly Something added on top of it, because our worship essentially is the foundation for just not who we are, first and foremost, yes, but also what we do. Remember, we use the word mass. The word mass comes from the Latin word missio, which means to be sent forth. So we use the word mass because while we receive God in the Holy Eucharist, we are called to what? Go forth. Be sent forth. We have been commissioned, cum missio. We have been sent with someone, and that someone, of course, is Jesus Christ and the life of the Holy Spirit. So, as we talk about these things, how we are called to interpret a new circumcision, a new kingdom, a new temple, and a new Jerusalem, we do so so as to pour them into. What this looks like in our everyday life. Theology is only as good as it's being applied to our everyday life. And I'll add to that, how we live out our life is enhanced, enriched by the theology we do. Now, I should say something else here. It's one thing to be a theologian, someone who studies theology and who studies all things in relationship to God but if you are a quote-unquote theologian without prayer, then you have failed as a theologian. Why? Because all good theology starts on bended knee, okay? All good theology starts on bended knee because on bended knee you gain access into what all of this theological stuff means, right? Now, in saying that, if you don't study theology, then all I can tell you is you're missing out. You're missing out on what God wants you to come to know, and by that I mean what he has revealed. Sacred scripture, my friends, is a love story, and he wants us to come to understand what this love story is all about, that he is madly in love with you, and his deepest desire is that we actually... desire him as much as he desires us. Does that make sense? That his deepest desire is that we love him as much as he loves us, because that's the heights of Christian love. The heights of Christian love. Amen? Amen. Okay, I'm looking up at the clock, and we don't have a lot of time left, and I'm looking at verses 2 and falling, and, and I think I'm right. We didn't really get beyond uh, beyond verse 1, which is okay, because in the end, it was important, I think, to appreciate what St. Paul was after here in this opening verse. Remember, St. Paul was steeped in the Old Testament, and he spent a great deal of time, months, and as we know from his letter to the Ephesians, Three years reflecting into the significance of who Jesus Christ was and how he came to fulfill the old covenant. Only then did he go forth and preach and teach and write. We are made to do the same thing, my friends. We are made to contemplate, and we do so by pouring ourselves in to the very thing that Paul did the old covenant so as to better understand the new. All right. Let's close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, an evening that has afforded us the opportunity to engage some very specific theological themes in particular, what it means to talk about what is new in the New Covenant, what is new in the New Testament, especially as it applies to what Jesus Christ came to fulfill we are rooted in sacred scripture. We are mindful of the many saints who have gone before us, who have helped us to better understand the unity of the old and the new and how they form and inform one another. Give us the grace of desire to spend more time with sacred scripture that we ourselves might be illuminated in our walk with you as we seek to go deeper and deeper into your most sacred heart.